The scripture this morning is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Hear the word of the Lord. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. As I pray before we turn to God's Word this morning, I'll be praying for Dave Margulis. Uh, Many of you know Dave and Michelle. Uh, We're not certain. Dave may have had a stroke during the first hour and so um, is in the hospital right now being treated. So if you would, lift up your prayers with me for him and Michelle and their family during this time. Father God, we lift up Dave to you right now. Lord, you are the one who watches over our lives. Lord, you are with Dave right now, and uh, I can't imagine how scary this is for Michelle. Uh, I ask, Lord, that you would grant your presence and your peace in the room in which they're in right now. Lord, as there may be doctors or physician's assistants or nurses working right now, we ask your blessing upon them. And Lord, we thank you for our dear brother, and we ask that you, the great physician, would watch over his life and that you would work in this situation. Lord, we ask this morning for healing for him and that uh, he would be able to rejoin us soon. So Lord, we commit them to you, and we ask that you would help us to minister to them even this day. Jesus, as we turn to your word now, we ask that you would open it to us and let us hear your voice. May you meet us in this place now, Lord. We thank you that you are here. And Lord, we thank you that we can be here today. And it's not because we are good enough or deserve something from you. It's simply because we're yours. As we just sang, your blood has made us clean. In you we have victory. In you we have life. And we thank you that because of that, We are here today to worship you, our God and Savior. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Do you guys know how it feels to get really excited about something where when you think about it, your blood just pumps a little faster, where you have anticipation over it, over a coming date or or something, and, and, and as the day approaches, you're enthusiasm, sometimes you can't seem to even contain it. It almost reaches a feverish pitch to it. Can you think of something like that? 
sometimes people would say, yes, uh, you know, those kind of things, they call to us, get ready. Something big is about to happen, something big is coming, so you need to be ready for it. And you can think about this if you've had a child or even if you've adopted a child because there is so much to do to get ready for the arrival of a young one. You're making lists, you're getting rooms ready, you're packing, you're doing all kinds of things, getting ready, and it's an enthusiasm, and and you're just anticipating that day. Maybe it's something you can relate to surrounding a vacation. You know, you're, you've got a big trip on the horizon, and there's a lot to prepare, there's a lot to get ready, so you're making your list, and you know, you're, you're keeping calm, and you're packing, those kinds of things, but you're anticipating there's something quite exciting on the horizon. Uh, a funny one to me is we use almost exclusively Macintosh computers, Apple Macintosh computers here at Stonebridge. And so I try to keep up with those. And there's a website where there's basically a bunch of geeks who love Mac, and, and they, they post about them all the time. And whenever Apple announces that new computers are about to come out, it is just delightful to go to the forums because it's like a party online as all these geeks are getting together and they're celebrating and they start putting pictures up of Tim Cook, the CEO, saying, it's happening, it's happening, new computers are coming. I mean, it's, and the forums, there's this feverish pitch to it, get ready, back up your hard drives, save up your money, ditch the old machine, buy the new one. And then, you know, they come out and people are complaining about them a week later. But <laughs> they're anticipating, get ready, something big is coming. That is kind of the opening of the Gospel of Mark for us. It's happening. It's happened. And, and what Mark wants us to do is to question right away, are you ready? Because something is coming, something has happened, something is happening that should make our blood pump a little faster, that should get our enthusiasm up in different ways, that we should anticipate it's happening. And the big question is, are you ready for it? So what we're going to do this morning as we start the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to be in it for a number of months, I'm going to try to introduce us to the series and cover eight passages at the same time which is probably foolish, but that means you just need to keep up. You can. You're smart people. I'd encourage you, open your Bibles to Mark. We're going to go through the first eight verses of it as we talk about it this morning. But a little background to this wonderful gospel that we have in front of us is who wrote it? Basically, John Mark. And if you know your Newer Testament, this name will ring a bell to you because do you remember when Peter was in prison in Jerusalem and he got miraculously set free by the angel, he left that place and he went to a house. And the Bible tells us where he went in Jerusalem was the house of John Mark's mother. This was also a place, his mother's house was used as a gathering place for Christians in the Newer Testament times. So Mark is somebody who is very familiar with all that's going on. Even in this gospel, we think there's an allusion to him. He's not named specifically, but it talks about a young man who something happened and he ran away naked. And most people think that was Mark. He, if you had to run away naked, you're probably not going to say that was me, you know, but most people think that was probably John Mark. He was also, he interacted with Paul. He accompanied Paul on his, his missionary journeys. And you'll remember the bad news is this. Ah, Mark abandoned 
Paul and Barnabas. And it got Paul so ticked that on the second journey, Barnabas said, hey, let's get John Mark. And Paul's like, no way. He deserted us. Forget him. And which caused Paul and Barnabas to part company for a period of time. Barnabas took Paul in. And it's a wonderful thing. Mark is a, is a story of somebody who a failed follower in different ways who gives me great hope because what happened is he got teamed up with Barnabas, the son of encouragement, who encouraged him in his faith. But also what we know about John Mark was Mark was very close to the apostle Peter. Peter, even in one of his epistles, calls John Mark my own son, which probably means that Peter had the privilege of bringing John Mark to faith in Jesus Christ. And so John Mark was um, a translator, a transcriber for Peter, very close to him. And what we have in the Gospel of Mark is not Mark's account of what happened, but Peter's account. So what you have is the Apostle Peter sharing his eyewitness testimony of being with Jesus all these years, and what Mark does is he writes it down. So the Gospel of Mark is Peter telling the stories of what happened with Jesus Christ, Mark writing it down, and that's where we get this Gospel from. Now, this series, as we get into it, we are simply calling it King's Cross, which is not original to us. It's actually directly stolen from a pastor named Tim Keller. He had a book named King's Cross, and for publishing reasons, changed the name if you want to read along, this is just one among many resources the pastors are using as we go through this gospel. But it's, what's great about this as opposed to a commentary, it's actually written like a book. So you can just follow along and read it. It doesn't line up with how we're going to go through Mark exactly, but it's a great resource to tell you more about Mark. So if you want to get his book, Jesus the King, it's a great little resource on this. And when I say the term King's Cross, uh, some of you you know, you have a particular thing in your head, and if you're of a certain age, I know what that particular thing is. You're thinking it, I know, because I know this about you. What you're thinking about is King's Cross is the place where you go to get the Hogwarts school, you know, Harry Potter, the books, the movies. And so King's Cross was a, it is a station in London, a train station, and so Harry would have to go and find platform nine and three quarters. So, you know, uh, and if you don't know this reference, you're a muggle, and if you don't know what a muggle is, you just prove that you're a muggle. So, you know, anyway, and if none of that makes any sense, just forget it. But King's Cross, let's, so let's get Harry Potter out of our heads for a minute, and it's a wonderful summary of the entire book of Mark, because Mark divides very neatly into two equal sections. The first, there's 16 chapters in Mark. The first eight chapters are all about who Jesus is, Jesus' identity as the king over all things. So there's king. And then the next eight chapters, 9 through 16, are all about Jesus' purpose about dying on the cross. And so that's where the term king's cross comes from in defining the gospel of Mark. You'll actually see next week the banners will have these symbols on them. And when you look at them, you can just think, Mark 1 through 8, Jesus is identified as king over everything. Mark 9 through 16, Jesus' purpose in going to the cross. So, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to go through the opening verses. And 
it begins this way. Mark's gospel is rather unique. There is no baby Jesus in the manger here. It doesn't start that way. It doesn't start with a genealogy or anything like that. Here's how Mark begins telling us who Jesus is in verse 1, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And if you have your Bible open, there's actually a comma there because that's not a full sentence there, but that's, that's verse 1 of Mark, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And what I want to do is point out three things to you because this is loaded with meaning for us. First, as he begins, if you were here last week, we talked about how at the heart of Christianity isn't teaching, at the heart of Christianity is not about being a better person or getting to become a good person. You know, at the heart of Christianity is good news. Good news comes from a Greek word, it's euangelion, it's, you know, the word gospel. And so here you can see the beginning of the gospel about Jesus So, good news. And why this word is so significant is Mark intentionally uses the word gospel to tell us Jesus, who is this guy? He's a king. And how do we know that? Because the word gospel isn't a Christian term in its origin. Where this word comes from is from the imperial cult of Rome, wherein the people of Rome worshiped the emperor. And here's what would happen. So, when you have a new emperor take the throne or do some great thing, something wonderful that the emperor does, what they would do is they would send out messengers throughout Rome proclaiming the gospel, a gospel good news. So, for instance, if a section of the Roman Empire was at risk of being invaded by the barbarian hordes, and the emperor and his armies defeated them, a gospel was declared. Good news. The emperor, our mighty king, has defeated our enemies and preserved peace for us. Celebrate, take a day off all the empire, and worship Caesar. When a new heir to the throne was born, the gospel would go out. Good news. There's an heir. When that heir would come of age, and ascend to the throne. Good news, a gospel would go out. So Mark takes this term that was used commonly in the Roman Empire related to the emperors and says, I'm here to declare the good news, the gospel, as opposed to all the other good news that you hear all the time, let me tell you the true one. And so what he does is he wants to show directly a contrast between the one true gospel and all the others, between the kingdom of God as opposed to the kingdom of those who falsely claimed to be God. So Mark's readers, right off the bat, they're like, whoa, a gospel? and it's not Caesar, Mark is saying Jesus is a king. But he's not just any king. He goes on and says Jesus the Messiah, which means anointed royal person. In the Greek, it's just the word Christ. This is not Jesus' last name. It's a title. Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. And for Jews who read this, I cannot overstate or exaggerate 
how filled with meaning this was to them. This is a word that made their hearts beat fast. This is a word that made their blood pump. This is a word that got their excitement and enthusiasm up because who is the Messiah? He's not just any king. He is the king. He is the king over all kings who's going to come and make the world a right again. He's going to take all the bad things and correct them. He's going to take all forms of injustice and undo them. This is the king who's going to recreate the world not just any king. This is the king. You see, Jews, when they heard the term Messiah, this is the king sent by God who is going to defeat God's enemies, restore God's people, and return God's presence to His people. Those things alone, this is why for the Jews, Messiah, and Mark saying, let me tell you, I know who the Messiah is. He has come. Jesus is a king. He's not just any king. He's the king. At at the time of Jesus, there's a group of people known as the Essenes, a very small community. You've probably heard of them in some way because of the Dead Sea Scrolls. They lived in caves in the desert surrounding Jerusalem and in Judea. They were a small little group of very devout Jews. And every meal that the Essenes had, they were called the Qumran community. Every meal, imagine this, they have an empty seat at the table. Why? Because the Messiah might show up during this meal. And so you kept an empty seat in anticipation. Today may be the day. This may be the hour. Are we ready if Messiah walks into our door during this holy meal that we are prepared for him? the king. And then Mark goes on and he says, son of God in this opening verse. You see, Jews, they believed the Messiah would be sent from God. They even believed the Messiah would represent God, but they did not expect the Messiah to be God. This is an amazing statement to Jews. And it's another in-your-face statement to Rome. Because what Mark does in the gospel, and all the gospels do this, because the gospels do many things. One, they show Israel how your hope, all the prophecies, everything are bound up in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah. But also what they do is they show how at that time the most powerful kingdom that the world had ever seen, that of Rome, it's nothing compared to the kingdom of God. And the reason this was in your face was because Caesar was called the Son of God. That's why the emperors were worshipped as a god. Caesar's the Son of God. And Mark's saying, no, no, no. Nero, Tiberius, they're not God. They're not the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. And His kingdom is far greater than Rome. And so Mark, in this opening verse, just slams meaning upon meaning, significance upon significance in the words he's using, all for the purpose of this, saying, are you ready? It is happening. Get prepared. And so what I want to do is open up some of the rest of this passage to us, because that's, that's just verse 1. 
And we can't get into everything in verses 2 to 8, but I want to hit some of the significant themes, and then we'll apply those at the end. So some things that will help you as we go through this. First is this concept of the forerunner. Verses 2 and following says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locust and wild honey. There is so much here. John Mark says, John Mark says John the Baptist is the forerunner that's expected. You see, Jews knew there was going to be somebody that comes before the Messiah to prepare the way, just as these verses say. The Jews expected it's probably going to be Elijah, and there's a whole series of reasons why they believe that. John's saying Elijah has, in essence, returned, and it's John the Baptist. And what we read here is that John shows up as Elijah in his demeanor because John's fiery preaching and personality is very much like Elijah. It shows up in John mimics Elijah in his lifestyle, where he lived, isolated in the desert, very much like Elijah, even down to the very clothing he wore. John was not making some fashion statement, you know, when he's wearing camel's hair and a leather belt. And when Elijah wore a camel's hair and a leather belt, he wasn't making a fashion statement. He was garbed particularly for different reasons. And there's a story, you can read about it in 2 Kings chapter 1, where the king of Israel, these messengers come to him, he's like, and they have a message for the king, they're like, who sent you to me? Why do you think you can come to me? And they said, well, this man told us to, and he was really convincing. He's like, what man? And I said, well, we don't know. He had a garment of hair and a leather belt around his waist. And the king goes, I know that man. That's Elijah. Elijah was known for his dress. And John shows up in the desert, eating the same kind of food, talking in the same manner, wearing even the same clothing. John the Baptist is the messenger. Elijah, come and what's significant, you know, John, we don't give him a fair shake. Because, and I think it's honestly because, obviously, Jesus is more important. But know this, John in this passage is a rock star. When it says, you know, up here, the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, Josephus the historian says, Tens and tens of thousands of people were going into the wilderness desert to see John. This guy, everyone's attracted to him. You know, I've joked before, when I go to General Assembly, our annual meeting, and I'm there with Kevin or Doug, I feel really, really small because these guys are rock stars. Everyone knows them. Now, everyone knows them, and so we can't go five feet down a hallway without three people coming up. Hey, Kevin! It's like, I'll see you later. 
as popular as Doug and Kevin are in that context, John had tens of thousands of people coming out to him. They can't get enough of him. And, and, and the reason I say that is, is significant to me in a couple of ways. Primarily because of what Mark says, and this was his message, after me comes one, the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. You see, to take off and unstrap someone's sandals in that time, that was designated for the lowest class of people because it was one of the dirtiest jobs you could have. And here's John, who people are thronging to see him. Speak some more, John. Tell us some more. And he says, let me tell you, there's somebody coming that's going to make me look like nothing. There's somebody coming who I'm not, I'm not worthy to get in the dust and untie his sandals. There's someone coming who is so magnificent, who's so far beyond me, you can't even compare me to him. And the people are thinking, whoa, who is coming? Because everyone's coming out to see John. Josephus in his History of the Jews actually talks more about John than he does Jesus. Far more about John. I cannot tell you how significant John was to the people at that time. We tend to gloss over him. And that's why it also, when, when John makes his famous statement, I must decrease and he must increase, that's an amazing statement. And John's message, there's somebody coming. I baptize with water. There's somebody coming to baptize you with spirit. Here's John's message. Are you ready? Are you ready? Because something is happening. Someone's coming. So that's the messenger. Let's talk a little bit about the wilderness, because this is significant, and you'll see it used twice in our passage today, once in verse 3, once in verse 4, and you're going to see it twice used in the passage next week that is covered. Now, when you and I hear the word wilderness, what do you think of? Trees. You think of trees. You think of animals. You think of bison or deer or marmots and squirrels, and, you know, you think, when you hear wilderness... You think a place that is full of life. Birds are singing. You're getting out of nature. That's not what it meant for the Jews. Wilderness for the Jews was the opposite of what we think of. Their word wilderness was desert. You see, a wilderness to us is a place that's filled with life. A wilderness for the Jews was a place that cannot support life. A wilderness is a place that's barren. It's full of thorns if you're in the desert, you're going to be thirsty. You're going to be hungry. You're going to be lonely because there's not community in the desert. The wilderness is a place of hardship in different ways. And why the wilderness is significant here is because the Jews knew as hard as the desert was, as bad as the wilderness was, that's where you meet God. And let me just give you a few examples. These are just a few among many. Remember when Jacob wrestled God? He did that in the wilderness, in a dead, dry place. He met God and wrestled Him. Remember Moses, when he saw the burning bush, where was he? He wasn't in the city. He wasn't in the suburbs. He was in the desert, in the wilderness. He met God 
in that place. The greatest story of Israel was the Exodus, when they got freed from Egypt. Where did they go immediately after they were freed? They went to Sinai in the desert, and God met them there. You see, for Israel, here's how one commentator talked about it. The wilderness repeatedly represents in Israel's history a place of repentance and a place of God's grace. Why is the desert significant? Because, and this is why I believe you could say, I'll rephrase what Edwards is saying here a little bit, is the desert reminds us God is not just something that we add to our life. I'll keep God in my back pocket. When I need you, I'll bring you out and I'll talk to you. A desert doesn't allow for that. The desert reminds us God is our life. Because in the desert, remember how Israel wandered through the desert, through the wilderness for 40 years? Who took care of them? God, every step of the way. They couldn't provide food for themselves. God provided manna. He provided quail. He provided water when they needed it. A desert is a place that reminds us you can't make it on your own. And it's the place where God shows up and gives you life when you need it. So we get why that's important for the Jews and significant. But So what about us, you may be saying? How does that, what does the wilderness mean to us? I think this is a very fair application of this. You can meet God in the wilderness of your own life. In fact, you can have great confidence that when in a desert situation, seek God and you will find Him. John the Baptist is meeting people in the desert, preparing them for the arrival of the true King, the Messiah, God Himself. Your desert experiences, my desert experiences, often prepare us to experience the Lord in a way that we never have before. Our desert experiences remind us I'm not alone. I don't have to provide everything. I don't have to figure it all out. He's the one who gives me life. He's the one who sustains my life. And the reason I can tell you that is because it's not just that this text teaches it. I've experienced this. The past couple of weeks have felt like a desert for all kinds of various reasons. And here's what I found. Seek God in the desert. You will meet Him. Seek Him with all your heart, and He will reveal Himself to you. He will provide. He will care. He will sustain. He will love you. My friends, you are not on your own, and you're not expected to do life on your own. This is such good news. And maybe you're feeling lonely today. Maybe you're feeling dry. Maybe, maybe life really does feel like a desert. Here's the good news. It's a great preparation to meet God. These words uh, to the early Christians were so life-giving, I believe, and here's why. Mark's gospel came out about 
scholars will think somewhere in the mid-60s, like not 1960s, 80s, 60s, 63, 64, 65, somewhere in there, those mid-60s. If you know what's going on in history at that time, who's on the throne of the Roman Empire? Nero. The first five years of Nero's reign, incredible emperor, wonderful, just man. Something happened and Nero literally went insane. And he started doing bad things that we can't even get into. But shortly before Mark's gospel comes out, or right about the time it came out, is when Rome had its great fire. And people, scholars to this day, still debate, did Nero set it or not? A lot of people believe he was part of it. He had thought Rome one of the ugliest places, and so a lot of people think he set it intentionally to rebuild Rome. Well, the fire got out of hand, destroyed most of Rome. Somebody had to be blamed, and it sure wasn't going to be Nero, so Nero blamed the Christians. And here's what he did to them. He crucified thousands of them. You would walk through the city of Rome, and there would be thousands of crosses of Christians of all ages, men, women, children. Why are they being crucified? Because these are the people blamed for the fire. By the way, these Christians, you know, don't you know they're cannibals? They talk about eating a man's flesh and drinking his blood. They're antisocial. They don't worship the Roman gods. They deserve this anyway, after all. So thousands of Christians lining crosses in the streets of Rome. He would, for fun, take many others, sew them up in animal skins, cut them, leave them on the side of the road so feral dogs would come along thinking they found a wounded animal and then would devour the Christians. He put them in the arena for games and sportsmanship. He dipped them full bodies in pitch, tied them up on stakes. Nero had this supposedly amazing garden, and then he lit them at night so the Christians would burn throughout the night illuminating his garden. And he took pleasure in this. This is Nero. And at this time when the persecution is happening in the mid-60s, what Christians do is they go underground to what are known as the catacombs of Rome. They're places of burial. You'll find Christian art down there. There's a picture on one of the walls of the catacombs, Alpha and Omega there, the anchor, the fish, all Christian imagery. Imagine what this was to the Christians who felt like in the mid-60s, this is a desert. This is, we can't make it. And Mark's saying, remember, the Lord comes in the desert. He'll meet you in your desert. Okay, last thing, because we've got we to move on here. The road. Where is this king heading you see, when an emperor traveled to a city, when a king traveled, what they would do is they would create a road fit for a king. If you and I, we got the schlumpy roads. If you had to go over a mountain, you literally went over the mountain or you went around the mountain, not the king. What they would do is literally, they would either bore through the mountain or level it, literally you know, getting machines, getting tools, leveling the mountain. So why? So the king could pass through on straight ground. Because a king's worthy of that. A king's worthy of a straight road. 
Mark even kind of references that when he says this, prepare the way for the Lord, the road for the Lord, make a straight path for him. You have a canyon, what do you do? You fill the dirt in so the king passes over the canyon on a straight, flat road. And Mark is saying Jesus is a king who has a road laid out before him, and John is starting to prepare the road, but where is the road going? It is going eventually to a throne, but there's an important stop on this road on the way to the throne, and it's the cross. You see, the road of this king, Mark says, is unlike any other king's road. This is a king who doesn't just go to glory. This is a king who goes to death for his people so that they may be saved. This is a king worthy. And and what he's doing here is he's saying this road of the true king is going to take him into the worst desert ever where he is going to face God's worst enemies and defeat them, sin and death and the devil himself. And in this desert that this king travels, there's going to be thorns. There's going to be thirst. There's going to be hunger. And there's going to be a loneliness that no one has ever experienced to the degree that he experiences on the cross. There's no king like this. And so Mark's saying, are you ready for this king? The way I'm going to apply it this morning is just to ask you some questions. Have you ever had an experience? I've had this, I told you, the last two weeks have been hard, and I think it's because of stress, but you, where you wake up like every other hour of the night. You know, sometimes it happens when you're sick and your body just gets off. And every other hour, and you're just like, oh, just let me go to sleep. And you keep waking up. And just, and you know this, just when you finally feel you're getting into that good sleep, it's like, oh, the alarm blares, and you're jolted up, and you're like, it can't be morning. Oh, my goodness, it is morning. That's kind of what Mark is doing, is he's saying, wake up. Wake up. Don't slumber any longer because something is happening, and you need to be ready. So here are some questions to apply it. I think this passage asks us this. Where are we asleep today? Where are we asleep at Stonebridge today? Where are we asleep in our community? Where are we asleep in our personal lives? And what's it going to take to wake us up? Also, do you and I live in wholehearted anticipation of our King's coming you know what, I think sadly a lot of us are like, oh, Jesus, come back, but maybe not today. Because I've got, I've got a lot of fun stuff planned today. Or, you know, the wedding's right around the corner, and I really want to see that, Jesus. As if we think our own wedding is going to be greater than the great wedding of the Lamb. But we often, Jesus, yeah, I look forward, but not yet. Mark's gospel's saying, are we living in wholehearted anticipation of His coming? This is one that got me. Are we so eager to pass the good news on to others so they too are ready? You know, sometimes Jesus, I love Jesus. Jesus is just all right with me. I don't talk about Jesus a whole lot. And why is that? Because he doesn't capture our imaginations and our heart. Mark's gospel from Peter 
Jesus captures the imagination. He's the greatest person ever. Are you ready for him? So we share the good news. And then finally, where are we too cozy with sin? The Jews couldn't believe that John the Baptist was saying, you too need to get baptized. They were God's people. It was only the Gentiles who got baptized, and they did so when they became a Jew and brought into the covenant community. And they wouldn't get baptized by somebody else, especially not a Jew. They would wash themselves. And here's John showing up saying, even God's own people need to be ready because what God is about to do in the coming of the king is so altering, so breaking the status quo of everything, everyone needs to wake up and everyone needs to be ready. That's how Mark opens and encourages us to think. Lord Jesus, forgive us our slumber. Forgive us our it's so easy just to be going through life. Let us live in fullness of anticipation of you. Lord, let us see you as you are, the true King, the Son of God. And may we worship you all of our lives in a way in which you are worthy. In your name we pray. Amen.